Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 63. Last week, I summarized ancient Egyptian history from its prehistory through the end of the Middle Kingdom. So, the period of time from before the concept of time was relevant to them through about the year 1650 BC. Quite a bit of history to wedge into about 27 minutes. In this episode, there'll be less wedging of years, but no less information. Essentially, I'll be summarizing from the beginning of the Second Intermediate Period to the end of the Roman era. And with that, let's get started. When I left off last week, well, just before I left off, the 12th dynasty ended with the death of Queen Sobenefru in 1802 BC. She had no direct heirs which, throughout the history of the kingdom, well, really all kingdoms, proved problematic. No heirs did not mean that there was no ruler. Instead, it always leads to several vying for the power, prestige, and control that came with the throne. And far too many are willing to do far too much to gain the title. Sometimes this power struggle manifests immediately, other times, it festers for generations, but sooner or later, it comes around. In this case, she was followed by the much weaker 13th dynasty that would control the country for about 150 years. This is a great example of how the dividing lines between periods are not black and white, but they are varying shades of gray. Sometime during this 150 years, the Middle Kingdom ended and the Second Intermediate Period began. But the exact date that happened is debatable, and not particularly relevant to this podcast. But it did happen. Centralized power, control, and governance led to decentralized local rule. A fragmented country. Also during the century and a half, as happened so frequently just before upheaval, the rains lessened followed by a lower annual Nile flood. No rightful heir and starving people. Something's going to give. This slow spiral downward occurred during the 13th and 14th dynasties. Not long after the reigns of the 13th dynasty pharaohs, Neferhotep I and Sobekhotep IV, in around 1720 BC, the 13th lost control of the northern part of the country. In came the 14th, thought to be comprised of rulers not from Egypt, but instead from the Levant. They would establish their kingdom in the marshes of the Nile Delta. During the 14th dynasty, suddenly a people, thought to be immigrants from the Levant, known as the Hyksos, arrived in Egypt. This is thought to have happened around 1650 BC. The Hyksos would take control of the city of Avaris, which at the time was the capital of the 14th. So, typically when a dynasty loses physical control of its capital, it also loses power. This time was no different. And with that, out with the 14th, and in with the 15th dynasty, a dynasty of the Hyksos, but the 13th still controlled Middle and Upper Egypt. No matter, the Hyksos weren't satisfied with controlling only a portion of the country. They quickly advanced south towards Memphis and conquered the 13th dynasty. 
There is a competing theory that the Hyksos gained control of the land, not through military conquest, but instead through a steady migration and eventually overrunning the native Egyptians with a greater populace. According to this counter-theory, the Egyptian kings of the 13th and 14th dynasties were not able to stop these recently arrived immigrants from traveling to Egypt from the Levant because the Egyptian kingdoms were struggling under the weight of drought and famine and the lingering effects of a succession crisis. However, it did occur. These outsiders were now in charge, first defeating the 14th, then the 13th dynasty. These recent immigrants may have previously arrived in Egypt at the invitation of the pharaoh. And if you think that's an interesting parallel to the waning chapters of Genesis, you're not alone. I explored the theories around this in the podcast Chapter 3, Episode 29. I'll forgo repeating myself, but if you haven't listened to that episode, and you find the topic compelling, you know where to find it. With these outside recent arrivals seizing power in northern Egypt and the splitting of the kingdom, we're in the middle of the second intermediate period. The Hyksos kings would control areas outside of lower Egypt through local vassals. Their capital would be at Memphis, but they did have an alternate, probably summer residence in the cooler delta at Avaris. But to be clear, the kingdom, despite the control of most of it by the 15th dynasty, well, the kingdom wasn't united. About the same time that the 13th in Memphis fell to the Hyksos, different natives, further south in Thebes, declared their independence and set up the 16th dynasty. But that didn't last long, as the Hyksos continued their advance and overtook Thebes around 1580 BC. Curiously, they didn't stick around. Soon after defeating the native Egyptians in Thebes, the Hyksos went home. Well, to their Egyptian homes in Memphis and the Delta. This led to the ascension of the native 17th dynasty at Thebes. How this happened, along with the sudden departure of the Hyksos, is a bit of a mystery. But the current thinking is that the Theban 17th dynasty officially recognized the Hyksos as the rulers of the land and paid a tribute. So, they were likely vassals. There was also a trading relationship between the rulers of Upper and Lower Egypt. At least that's how it started. Slowly, the 17th would amass power and would eventually battle, then drive the Hyksos from the African continent back to the Levant. In what's thought to have been a rapid evacuation from the country back to their homeland, or at least going in the direction of their homeland. That, too, has the ring of familiarity. A king known as Amos I was in charge when the Hyksos were driven from the country. He's therefore credited with reuniting the kingdom, starting the 18th dynasty, ending the intermediate period, and beginning the new kingdom, all at once. He would rule from Thebes and push territorial expansion towards the south, towards Nubia, but he wasn't done. He also expanded their territory towards the Levant, and there was a purpose to this. It's thought that Egypt desired to establish a barrier between their kingdom and those troublesome Hyksos, 
never wanting to be in the situation where they were ruled by a foreign power. We'll see how that works out. With this territorial expansion, it's thought that Egypt reached its largest geographic size as an independent kingdom during the New Kingdom, ranging from the interior of Nubia in the south, into Libya in the west, and into the Levant in the northeast, so far into the Levant that they would fight the Hittites for control of what is today Syria, well north of where the tribes of Israel had, or would, settle. The New Kingdom was an extremely prosperous time for Egypt. It was also the period when Egypt would have a rare female ruler, Hatshepsut. Under her extremely competent leadership, Egypt would extend their trading as far south as the Horn of Africa, and well north of the Levant, past Syria, and into Anatolia. She was succeeded by Thutmose III, who strengthened the army and used it to defend and expand the kingdom. It was during his reign that the king took the title of Pharaoh, a title that's thought to have originally referred to the royal palace. Amenhotep III would expand the temples, including the legendary Luxor Temple. Then, there was a slight diversion in the 18th dynasty. Amenhotep IV changed his name to Akhenaten and began to worship their god Aten, maybe exclusively potentially a short Egyptian foray into monotheism, kind of. It's thought he did expect the people to worship him as their deity, and he did not push his possible beliefs on the populace. And it wasn't likely a complete theological shift, as there is other archaeological evidence from the period that tends to show the continued worship of other deities. Who knows? What we do know is that, potentially due to his religious changes, or something else, his reign was not very good for the country. After his death, the religion of the country quickly reverted to the traditional polytheism. He would relocate the capital to Amarna, where it would remain for a few generations, and included several leaders that at the time were considered minor, but who recent history has treated differently including Horemheb, Nefertiti, and Tutankhamun. It was during the New Kingdom that many of the leaders and their children would be entombed in the so-called Valley of the Kings, with a few of the tombs, such as Tut's, laying undisturbed until their discovery in the 20th century. Horemheb would be the last ruler of the 18th dynasty, dying without a familial heir. He would instead name a leader later known as Ramses I to succeed him. And with Ramses came the 19th dynasty. But he's not the most famous Ramses, as he would only reign for two years and would be succeeded by Seti I. Seti continued his immediate predecessor's efforts of restoring power, control, and respect to Egypt. He was also responsible for creating the temple complex at Abydos, it was during the 19th dynasty that the kingdom had its potentially greatest ruler, Ramses II, more frequently referred to as Ramses the Great. He would take the throne at the age of 18, around 1279 BC, and rule for an impressive 67 years. He would expand and build more temples, and take on military expeditions into the Levant, 
attempting to recover territory lost by his predecessors to the Hittites. One of these campaigns to Syria would culminate in the imminent Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BC. It was here that his forces would be ambushed by the Hittites, who also had the advantage of superior numbers. But Ramses would be victorious. Despite his victory, he would depart Syria for his homeland, essentially acquiescing control of the region back to the Hittites. He would return later to again battle the Hittites, but would eventually sign a treaty that wasn't really a peace treaty, but more of a general agreement to stop fighting. Potentially a ceasefire, similar to what is seen today between the two Koreas. His successors would continue the military campaigns, and the throne would stay in the family for a bit, at least until Sipta took the throne. When he took the throne, he was ill, potentially with polio. Since he was sick, he was essentially unable to rule, so a vizier, possibly from the Levant, known as Chancellor Bey, ran the government. Sipta would not rule for very long, perhaps six years, and he was succeeded by Tusseret, Sipta's stepmother. She wouldn't reign long either, and the next thing you know, there's a succession crisis and a civil war. Chancellor Bey would end up executed, and a possible usurper would take control. His name isn't important, but he did establish the 20th dynasty and was the father of Ramses III, who would take the throne in 1279 BC and rule for 66 years. In his eighth year, Egypt was invaded by the so-called Sea Peoples, who he would defeat. Then a bit of uncertainty. He would claim he resettled these people into the southern Levant, but they may have invaded and captured the territory on their own. These invaders from an unknown area are thought to have been one and the same as the Philistines in the Old Testament, at least according to some. When I get to the Philistines, I'll explore this further. For now, know that their appearance in the Levant may have contributed to the formation of new states in the region, such as Philistia, of course, and others. Back in Egypt, Ramses was forced to fight invading Libyan tribesmen in two major campaigns in the western Nile Delta. Foes to the left of me, foes to the right, stuck in the middle. All of these conflicts and the financial burden they imposed slowly drained the Egyptian treasury. About the same time, Ramses would withdraw his forces from Nubia. Without wealth, or at least with less, the economy suffered, and this was severely visible in their West Asian territories. Then, a so far yet to be explained climatic event occurred that would lead to lower crop yields. And this time, it wasn't a drought, nor lower Nile flooding. There was either increased cloudiness or volcanic ash that decreased the level of sunlight hitting the ground. And it didn't just impact Egypt, but can be seen in the tree growth rings all across the northern hemisphere. And it wasn't temporary, perhaps lasting as long as 20 years. In Egypt, less sunlight led to less grain, which begat starvation, which begat societal unrest. 
and then the perfect storm for the end of an Egyptian kingdom and the transition to an intermediate period, a succession crisis. When Ramses III died, a rapid succession of other rulers named Ramses took charge. They were either the sons or grandsons of number three, all numbered between four and eleven. And in the period, besides rapidly dying rulers, climate change, famine, and economic decline, there was also civil unrest and political corruption. Long story short, all of these factors led to a split kingdom in the Third Intermediate Period. The 21st dynasty would control Lower Egypt with the middle and upper portions of the former country being controlled by the high priest of Amun, ruling from Thebes. The country would be reunited by the 22nd dynasty, and despite the reunification, the poorer conditions of the nation, along with how short-lived this dynasty was, leads researchers to still consider it an intermediate period. The unification would only last for about 100 years. Then the country would split again, with the 22nd controlling Lower Egypt and the 23rd ruling Middle and Upper. To their south, the Nubians were keeping their eyes on what was happening and would, through both political-slash-marriage maneuvering, along with military might, capture Upper Egypt. Southern Egypt had been overtaken by the Libyan invaders, so, the country was essentially ruled by outsiders. The Nubians saw the Libyans as an opportunity and continued to press northward, making it as far as Memphis. Then, the ruler of Lower Egypt essentially surrendered. The Nubians allowed him to remain as a vassal king of his territory, known as the 24th Dynasty. Several native Egyptians would attempt to lead the people against the Nubians, and they would fail. The Nubian Empire, a.k.a. Kush, would reunite the whole of the Nile Valley for the first time since the New Kingdom. Temples were built and restored. They also began to build pyramids in their homeland, what is today Sudan, as well as Egypt. The first such structures since the Middle Kingdom, which ended some 900 years before. To the north and east of Egypt, well, really now, an extremely large Nubian empire were the Assyrians, and they were growing in power. The Assyrians would attack, then invade, and then win, gaining territory including Memphis and Thebes, driving the Nubians south, back towards their homeland. Shortly after their victories, the Assyrians were distracted by internal revolts and a civil war. And in Egypt, the Assyrians would install a native dynasty, the 26, the last native rulers to rule before the Persian conquest, controlling the country for about 85 years between 610 and 526 BC. After the Assyrians came the Babylonians, who, while they had their sights on Egypt, they could never capture it, mostly because the Egyptians paid Greek mercenaries to aid in their defense. The Babylonians were led by their king, Nebuchadnezzar II, and did manage to gain control of the Sinai Peninsula. They would briefly invade Egypt itself, but were quickly repelled. Of course, the Babylonian Empire was rather short-lived, and they were replaced by the new rising star, the Persians. 
Now, the Persians would make quick work of the Egyptians, taking over the country in essentially 525 BC. The Persian king, Cambyses, would assume the title of Pharaoh, forming the 27th dynasty. He would even sacrifice to the Egyptian gods. The Persians would rule Egypt as a satrapy. For simplification, just think of it as an administrative province. Egypt would remain under Persian control, ruled by Persian leaders, various iterations of Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. And what seemed to be extremely common throughout the region, the Persians would kill each other just for a chance to rule. During one of these struggles, the Egyptians would briefly establish a native ruler, Amartyas of the 28th dynasty, who would rule for about five years. Unfortunately for him, he was the only ruler of the dynasty. He would fall to the 29th dynasty, and then very quickly, the country would fragment again. The 29th led to the 30th, who would rule between 380 and 343 BC. They were the last native rulers of ancient Egypt. Throughout this period, the Persians were always knocking at their door, attempting to regain what had been lost a few generations earlier. Artaxerxes III would invade in 351 BC to be defeated, which led to rebellions throughout the Persian Empire. He would invade Egypt again in 343 BC, and this time the Persians won, chasing the fleeing pharaoh Noctanebo II all the way to Nubia. And with that, ancient Egypt had lost its independence for good. But the Persians were apparently a passing thing, as only ten or so years later, the Greek Alexander the Great of Macedon would conquer Egypt without a fight. Alexander was heralded by the Egyptians as their liberator from the Persians. While in Egypt, he showed respect towards their native religion, which further endeared him to them. But he would place native Greeks, along with ethnic Greeks, who had previously settled in the area, in charge of the government. There was no doubt that Egypt was now a Greek kingdom. Alexander would use Egypt's wealth to finance a portion of his forthcoming battles with the Persians. He would depart the country in 331 BC, never to return, at least not while he was alive. Alexander would die in Babylon in 323 BC, and what arose was what typically followed a sudden death of a powerful ruler. Another succession crisis, this one involving his generals, Perdiccas would rule the empire as regent for both Alexander's half-brother Philip III and Alexander's infant son, Alexander IV. Using his regency powers, Perdiccas appointed Ptolemy, one of Alexander's closest companions, to rule Egypt. Soon after his death, Alexander's empire would crumble, with each territory becoming somewhat independent. Like others, Ptolemy soon established himself as an independent ruler. He would successfully defend Egypt against an invasion by Perdiccas in 321 BC and secure his position in Egypt, along with the surrounding areas during wars and battles over the next 20 years. The Greek Ptolemaic rulers would control Egypt for the next three centuries, establishing themselves as pharaohs over Egypt. 
well into the declining period of the Greek Empire. In Egypt, they set up Greek culture as the dominant force in the country and also established the library at Alexandria. Their rule would last until the Romans took control in 30 BC. During Greek rule, the male rulers would take the name Ptolemy, followed by what is best described as a nickname, usually given to them well into or after their reigns. Some were not very flattering. The female rulers and queens would take the names Cleopatra, Arsinoe, or Berenice. The last Greek queen was its most famous, Cleopatra, officially the seventh iteration of that name, and she would have children with both Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, hoping to cement her control over Egypt, along with gaining a foothold into Rome. She would eventually ally herself with Antony and Herod the Great, both for political reasons. None of this scheming would work out for her, as she opted to off herself, essentially ending Ptolemaic control over Egypt and bringing in the Romans. The future Augustus Caesar, or if you like, Caesar Augustus, would defeat Egypt in 30 BC, making it a Roman province. At this time, the territory consisted of most of modern-day Egypt except for the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt was vital to the Romans as it provided both grain and treasure, and it was self-sufficient, being the wealthiest eastern Roman province. Alexandria, its capital, was the largest port in all of the empire and the second largest city. So, the empire couldn't lose it, making sure that a strong military presence was there to forestall any thought of a rebellion. And this strategy worked, as Egypt did not attempt any substantial uprising. And that's it. Over 10,000 years of Egyptian history condensed into two episodes, totaling less than an hour. I feel like I need to catch my breath. Join me next week when I'll circle back to the text in Exodus, when the Israelites are departing Egypt, to see who I'll cover next. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.